Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. So, a history of Christian theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams and Tom Velasco. All right. Hello, and welcome to a history of Christian theology. This week with me, as usual, will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This week we will be looking at Cyprian's tractate on the Lord's Prayer. This will be the first time that we've turned to this particular issue of the Christian life and Christian theology, and so I hope that it will be very beneficial for all of our listeners. We will touch on the various forms of the Lord's Prayer, the various endings, and what this does for the unity of Christians throughout the ages. We've also been having some good conversations on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash theology. So please check us out there and leave comments, be it on past podcasts or on the current podcast. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you guys are thinking about what we're saying and any ways that we can improve our podcast um, and incorporate different traditions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week where we will begin discussing Methodius. So are we ready? Yeah, let's uh, dig in. As, I, as I've said in uh, the past introduction, we haven't talked much about prayer um, we're, we're 200 years after Jesus and we haven't really mentioned prayer, so it might be a good time to go ahead and say, not important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let's just go ahead and say it's not important. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the good thing about reading Cyprian has been, we talked about unity, um, and some church history, um, and some just general Roman history. Now we're going to talk about prayer. Um, so we're hitting on new topics, not so much about the Trinity or free will, or these kinds of things. So we will uh, we'll be looking at prayer here, and Cyprian is going to um, introduce us to his interpretation or his way of reading the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I'll give a little bit of introduction. Um, or I probably have already given a little bit of introduction. Uh, in, uh, but uh, basically, we think that this was used um, to teach catechumens, to teach the new Christians before they get baptized how to pray. And that might be the occasion for why Cyprian wrote this. So... Um, I guess I'll just open it up. Any things that you guys notice that are different about how Cyprian um, encourages people to pray the Lord's Prayer or people to pray uh, that might be u- unique uh, to the period or you know different maybe than we're familiar with? Well, honestly, for me, one of the problems, and, and I, I think maybe it's my problem with Cyprian's writing style in general, I feel that this treatise on the Lord's Prayer is fundamentally not different from the other two treatises we've read in that he seems to have a point, and it seems to be a point that could be said very quickly, um, and he says a lot of stuff that is unnecessary. The problem here is it's hard for me to wade through the unnecessary stuff to find the point he's making. And when I, what I mean by that, I'll, I'll be concrete here on this. He makes some comments uh, about the Lord's Prayer, like, He says this in, I believe this is the second chapter, uh, initial chapter. He says, to pray otherwise than he taught is not ignorance alone, but sin. Since he himself has established and said, you reject the commandments of God 
that you may keep your own traditions. So he's talking about Jesus there, and he's saying to teach, to pray in any way other than how Jesus taught us to pray is sinful. What I'm not following is what does he mean to pray other than the Lord's Prayer? Does he mean the only prayer I'm allowed to pray is in fact the Lord's Prayer? Like I have to recite it verbatim? That would not seem the case because he later on quotes other Old Testament prayers, which he seems to be okay with, but they're not the Lord's Prayer. So I have to assume he means to pray in like fashion. That is to, because he breaks it down, of course, in this treatise, he breaks the Lord's Prayer into different elements, much like I think preachers today often do. Mm -hmm. And he comments on the different elements. It's a commentary. Yeah, it's a commentary. It's a commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And so maybe he means to pray with all those elements in place, but we run into the same problem in that the prayers he quotes from the Old Testament do not even do that. So I guess to some, in some degree, I raise the question of what is he asking us to do concretely? Well, and one thing uh, that's important to recognize for more liturgical churches, for the older churches, um, basically you repeat prayers and you don't speak um, what I would say extemporaneously, like off the top of your head. Uh, so it, you know, it becomes a pattern um, of the early monastics, which we're before there is our monks right now. Um, so there is no monasticism yet. But in monasticism, they will pray uh, all the Psalms over a week um, in addition to the Lord's Prayer. Um, and they develop this pattern that gets used into the church and it gets brought into the church liturgy where the only things that you can say are form prayers of various kinds, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, the creeds, um, these established words. And you can see a little bit of that um, in in what Cyprian says about the way that other people pray. So in chapter four, he says, for whereas the shameless groan and cry out, by contrast, it is fitting that the reverent man should pray reserved prayers. Or he goes on, not forever tossing out ill-judged phrases into the air, um, you know, with tumultuous verbosity, my translation says. Um, this is all chapter four. Um, he is sort of mocking the way that people, he thinks, pray um, sort of vainly or pride, pridefully. Um, but what what was interesting about that to me is that's kind of, well, not with not with such condemnation, but like I grew up in a tradition where we prayed um, – from, from the top of our heads, where we didn't read form prayers, where the most meaningful prayers were the ones that came, quote, from your heart rather than something that had been pre-written. And so I think that what Tertull, or excuse me, what Cyprian is arguing for, at least on, on a very basic level, is that the Lord's Prayer should be prayed as Jesus said it because you don't want to be tossing out ill-judged phrases or you don't, you don't want to be, um, you know, just trying to, you know, like Jesus talks, condemns the Pharisees um, who who just try to have long prayers so that they can be heard in the street corners, and and I think Cyprian's a little bit uh, weary of the, leery of that. Okay, so to pray otherwise than he taught, he just means to literally to change that prayer up, basically to change that prayer, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it it might very well be. I mean, there's a little bit of. Um, there's a little bit of discussion about what prayer looked like in the period. Um, it appears that in North Africa, the tradition was fixed hours of prayer, um, which Cyprian sort of discusses here, where in the morning you would pray, um, in the evening you would pray, and then at night you would pray, and there would also be three hours during the day. Um, and uh, so it's basically six, or yeah, six different fixed hours of prayer 
Um, and, and they would probably be Psalms uh, and, and the Lord's Prayer, and we're not sure what else. I, yeah. I thought this was kind of like cool because I didn't grow up in a tradition that did these prayers at all. But then as I got older, as a, just a form of discipline on myself, I began to pray the Lord's Prayer every morning, along with just my extemporaneous prayers. And then I, I pray two psalms throughout the day, whatever I consider midday and whatever I consider evening. It's not fixed at all, just more like when I finally think about it. Because more of a way of just getting me into the mood to pray, and I'm just trying to pray more than once a day. And I don't succeed at this by any means, so don't think like I'm awesome. I'm not trying to say I'm awesome. But I thought this was like kind of cool, though, because it was like, whoa, it's 258 AD. And I'm like, and here I am. And I just was like, whoa. It was a cool, like, I had a connection moment with this text in that way. Especially when he talks about the Lord's Prayer being like this communal thing. Maybe we want to jump to this later, but I thought the idea of it being our this and our that, and I kept saying, no, we're playing, praying this together. I thought, that's really cool. I never thought about that even when I say it alone. I've never assumed like I was praying with this body of people that are praying it. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I still don't understand why he said the phrase, if you pray other than this prayer, which he patently does. It doesn't seem to me that he's saying, if you change the words of the Lord's Prayer, it seems as if he's saying, you have to pray this very prayer. Well, mine says pray otherwise than he taught. And actually mine might say that too, but my I took it by implication yeah. that he meant, what did Jesus teach us? The Lord's Prayer. How, and and to yeah. teach other than or to pray other than the Lord's prayer is bad. But then at the end of the work in chapter thirty-five, he quotes the prayer in the Psalms where he says, "My King and my God, because unto Thee I will cry, O Lord, in the morning shalt Thou hear my voice. In the morning will I stand before Thee and will look up to Thee." And that's a, of course, from Psalm five. So he's he's clearly praying the Psalm there or referencing a Psalm prayer. So, uh, you know, my, my initial question wasn't about form prayers or extemporaneous prayer. Um, uh, I, I don't, I, I actually walked away from this not being fully certain that I knew, again, whether he believed in form prayers or extemporaneous prayers. Based on what I just read, based on the initial, the, the two quotes I've read, I would think he was for form prayer, specifically the Lord's Prayer and some Psalms. But then based on his commentary, it's almost as if he's giving us explanations for the sake of prayer, which would then be kind of uh, a call or maybe not a call, but you could interpret as him saying, hey, when you pray in your extemporaneous prayers, follow this model. Like, I think you could kind of read it perhaps as that. I, I think at the end of the day, I just don't know exactly. I mean, I'm not as well versed on what was going on at this particular time in the church. And there's no doubt that moment comes in church history where more or less they're reading form prayers. I just don't know when that moment exactly is. I definitely see it, though, in those two readings. I just am not certain because I'm not super clear on, on what he's doing. And I still am just confused on why he says to pray otherwise is sin. So. Yeah, well, and and I, you know, I don't know for for certain why he would say to pray otherwise is sin. Um, I think he, like I said, I think he is working a little bit in the tradition of um, 
what Jesus says in Matthew um, in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer, where he's a little worried about you know too much show in prayer. Um, he says this curious thing in uh, chapter eight, which again doesn't answer Tom's question. I mean, there really is you know no question or no answer. Uh, we know some patterns emerge. We know some of these. Um, hours when they pray, that they would use the Lord's Prayer, that they would use the Psalms. But we don't know for, I don't think any historian uh, knows for sure exactly what kind of prayers might have been said on an individual basis. There's a lot of study that's done on um, Jewish prayers and the way that Christians adopted some of those prayers. Uh, but uh, and, and actually some of the fixed patterns of prayer people think might go back to Jewish patterns. Um, but those... What's that? Do, those, do Jewish patterns like of form prayer go back to the first century AD? I mean, do they go back that far? Yeah. So like the 18 benedictions um, is one of the big sets of prayers that every Jewish person pray, prays in evening and uh, morning in the evening. And yeah, we think that those, that th- it's very likely that like Jesus would have known those. Hmm. Um, but um, well, one thing that I just thought was interesting, again, to this question of what does prayer look like and exactly what does prayer mean um, in chapter eight, he said at the very beginning, he says, before all else, the teacher of peace and master of unity desires that we should not make our prayer individually and alone as whoever prays by himself prays only for himself. We do not say my father who are in the heavens, nor give me my day, this daily bread. So. I bring this up to say he clearly envisions the use of this Lord's prayer in a community. Um, So this Lord's prayer is apparently not even something that you say alone, which is odd because he will later quote Acts where Peter goes up to pray um, on the roof at midday, which is one of the reasons we think that there were form prayers or at least not form prayers, but regular hours of prayer. Um, And he's clearly, Peter's doing it alone and clearly Jesus praise alone um, at times. But here he says, we should not make our prayer individually and alone, Um, which, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure what to make of it, except for, I also take the prayer to be a kind of sacrifice maybe. And so I, you know, it could be, if we think about it in the tradition of what goes back in the temple, you would come to the temple to make sacrifice. uh, If you're Jewish Um, after the temple's destroyed, there's no more sacrifice, but you would still come to the synagogue to pray. Um, and, and that was a kind of sacrifice. So maybe make your prayer as in make your sacrifice of prayer and you do it communally. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what he's saying because he, I don't think he could mean that we should never pray alone, but that's kind of the force of the quote. Yeah, that, that's, I think, where my issue is arising with him, period. And the issue I took with that first quote I read, because I agree with everything he says almost as long as it's not exclusive. In other words, I do think that there needs to be care. In other words, what I think I could find myself saying is, if we only pray alone and never pray together, that is sin. If we never pray the Lord's Prayer, that would be bad. That's, I think, kind of the way I would look at it, like a call or an injunction to make sure that these are a part of your life. But if you exclusively put those, like you can only pray the Lord's Lord's Prayer, I would say no. Or you can only pray together. I would say that's false. And it's funny because you know you guys both talked about what you kind of grew up in. And Chad, now you you were a part of a tradition where you guys read many more form prayers, where that is kind of the central part of your of your worship. And I'll you can expound on that if you want. But 
Um, for me, I came from a background which uh, looks at, looked at form prayers as bad, like almost as if something never to be done. Yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for me, I definitely, a long time ago, I think, developed this understanding that that was wrong, that form prayers are appropriate. And I looked at it that way for a couple of reasons. One, my, my background also engages in singing hymns and worship songs. Those are prayers and those are forms. <laughs> yeah. And so my thought was, I don't know why that would be good and praying forms would be bad. So I started adopting that. But also, too, when I read a prayer, say, from the Book of Common Prayer, which I do, I'll read prayers from the Book of Common Prayer or I'll read Psalms. Um, when I read those, I feel like I'm praying with people in that instant. Like I'm praying things that other people wrote and I'm agreeing in their prayers. And, and I, for me, I, that makes me feel as if I am a part of the body. Now, I also was a pastor and I was on staff at a church and our senior pastor, he highly valued uh, individual prayer and group prayer. And we actually, as a, as a part of our, um, you know, kind of weekly duties, uh, we would get away up to the mountain up in Garden Valley and we would go up to a cabin up there and we would spend the entire day as a pastoral staff praying. And we would do this every week. One, so one whole day out of our work week is just prayer. And what would happen is we would have it interspersed where we would pray together as a group and all the prayers were extemporaneous. And we would go off on our own for several hours of the day individually and pray as well. And that was, of course, extemporaneous as well. And that seemed to me incredibly valuable. And no doubt, my senior pastor, he, um, he definitely, he argued for this from the life of Jesus and from Peter going up onto the rooftop. He, he says, look, what, what do we find Jesus constantly doing in the midst of his ministry? He's trying to get away to go up into the hills to pray. He's trying, like, that's obviously a key component of his spiritual life. And I can say that I find extemporaneous prayer to be incredibly valuable. And I do treat it as if it's a conversation and where I am speaking to God and where I, of course, I think he's communicating back that he's speaking back in a sense. And I find that to have an enormous impact on my spiritual growth. And like, and in particular, I do view the relationship with God as a relationship. And I see that prayer component as the integral part of a relationship. Just like if I have a relationship with a friend, I need to spend time with that friend and talk with that person. Or if I, or if I were married, I would think that that would be integral to my marriage relationship to converse with that person. So I think for me, I've come to this point where I love extemporaneous prayer. I love alone prayer, but I also think people who devote themselves to that miss out on corporate prayer, which is so important, and form prayer, which I think is wonderful. And form prayer also is instructive, I think, because it teaches us how to pray. So, Yeah, I mean, Tom and I have talked about this a little bit, but um, I once had a professor at seminary who uh, was Anglican and who basically said, you should never pray extemporaneous. Um, now, I'm not... I'm not saying that I believe that, uh, but that's the other side of the spectrum. It's sort of how far, um, you know, different people that I've known in my life raised in a tradition where we never used form prayers um, and then being taught uh, by a professor who basically forbade uh, to anyone to ever speak extemporaneously. 
I find myself appreciating the the form prayers more than extemporaneous prayer, uh, if only because I get lost in my own thoughts and lost in what to say. And sometimes it's nice to have a guide and to feel like not only am I praying with other Christians, as, as we've discussed, but that Christians that are alive today, but praying with the whole church and through the history of the church and praying the same prayers that have been prayed. And it makes me feel connected to, you know, what Hebrews talks about, um, the great cloud of witnesses. Um, and, and I think, you know, I feel sort of a connection with that uh, when using the form prayers. Um, while Tom was talking, I pulled up the, the Latin um, and in the part that I just quoted uh, from chapter eight, where he says that we should not make our prayer individually and alone as whoever prays by himself prays only for himself. Uh, the Latin is a little bit more ambiguous where I do think what he could be saying is he says, when one might pray, one does not only pray uh, for himself. Um, and so I, I think it could be the, the, you know, the trick, like basically looking at the Latin, I would say, I think what he's encouraging is do not only be selfish in your prayers, um, <laughs> rather than pure, like you can only ever, you should never pray alone. It's just when you, you shouldn't pray only for yourself alone. Mm. Yeah. It seems like I always was trying to think of it as, he has words that have as their referent, um, or sorry, he has words which he uses and their referent could be many different things. And so he'll often say pray and prayer. And I'm going, which prayer and what prayer are we praying when you say the word pray? Are you only referring to this prayer right now? Are you saying this prayer should be prayed together? And then so I often, it's same. Yeah, so basically we all have a problem. in in this sense with uh, his writing, but I was taking it more. Well, I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, I guess. So I was thinking it like this guy's not an idiot. He must've read that people prayed alone. In fact, Jesus prayed alone. So I'm assuming he's thinking maybe of this prayer, maybe this prayer should only be, yeah, but I'm assuming he doesn't, he's not banning all uh, alone time prayer, but yeah, that would seem crazy. Um, One other part that I've, I've already read, but I'll bring up again. I mean, it is interesting to think, you know, um, well, we've, we've done a little bit on, um, uh, Montanism and Tertullian and what we thought of as sort of like early people that believed in the gifts of the spirit, the prophecies, the speaking in tongues. He, he, like Cyprian would be very uncomfortable (laughs) with, (laughs) with that kind of a prayer and that kind of a worship service. And I've heard it said, you know, before, maybe by a, a Pentecostal friend, but uh, where the early church might have had Pentecostals, but then it was sort of uh, snuffed out by the Roman Catholic hierarchy um, for a long period of time. And this may be a rough, a really uh, unfair presentation of, of Roman Catholicism, because now actually they embrace uh, Pentecostalism in a lot of ways in South America. Nevertheless, you can see where uh, Cyprian would be uncomfortable uh, with a little too much freedom in prayer, where he says, again, in chapter four, let the words and the pleas of those who pray be made with discipline, restrained, quiet, and reserved. Um, <laughs> so this is a very solemn uh, occasion of prayer that Cyprian envisions. Whatever it means to the history of the church, you know, we could probably leave that aside. But at least for Cyprian, uh, who believes very strongly in the unity of the church, um, he wants prayer to be my kind of prayer, basically, <laughs> contemplative. Which, you know, it's funny, there was a comment left um, 
on our iTunes page uh, just regarding the fact that we really don't have true kind of a true charismatic here on the show regularly, which is in a sense true for sure. I mean, when, when we've called me a charismatic, uh, we actually mean that in the strictly doctrinal sense. Um, and so without going too much into it, suffice it to say that in contemporary theology, you can kind of break down three different views on the gifts of the Spirit um, and on the notion of the empowering of the Spirit. Um, one is what you might call cessationist, meaning that uh, people who hold to the cessationist view believe that there aren't miraculous gifts for today, that speaking in tongues, that uh, prophecies, things of that nature, they, they went out with the apostles, that they ended with the apostles. But then there's the Pentecostal and the charismatic views, and the difference between those two is essentially over one little thing. But the thing that dis- distinguishes those two from cessationism is just that they believe that those gifts have not gone out. That is, those are still, those are still properly employed by the church. Um, the difference between Charismatics and Pentecostals is that Pentecostals believe that the evidence that you have been empowered in the Spirit and baptized in the Spirit is that you have spoken in tongues, that that is the mark of you doing it, whereas Charismatics believe that you can be empowered or gifted um, without that initial evidence. So that's the, that's the breakdown. So when we say I'm a Charismatic, I just mean I'm a Charismatic in that sense meaning I do believe in miracle gifts for today. I do believe in speaking in tongues. I do believe in prophecies. Now, one of the criticisms was is that I'm not charismatic enough, I guess, or something along those lines. And in reality, that's true. I'm not. No person who really identifies as a charismatic and who really kind of owns that is going to feel super comfortable with me as their representative because the reality is is I am not a person who really – who's very liberal in those, and I don't mean liberal in a bad way. I just mean I'm not very free in terms of my expression of those gifts or in the way that I talk about those gifts. I believe in them. That's what, that's what makes me a charismatic in that sense. But I am not a part of traditions, it's true, that really, really makes heavy use of them and in which that kind of emotion that goes with it is a very dominant part of their church service. That's not the way my church is. All of that is a fair Fair, truly fair criticism. Um, that having been said, I think it's interesting that you bring up the Montanists. Uh, there were a couple other works too, not just the Montanist work, but if you go back to, um, uh, oh shoot, what was it? It was, uh, oh, what was it called? It was one of the early works that we were not huge fans of that did make frequent mention of prophecy and. Um, the Shepherd? Yes, the Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, yeah, Shepherd of Hermas. So if you take the Montanists and you take the Shepherd of Hermas, you do find in them this call to a very, very, um, uh, maybe I can't think of the right word, not emotional, but a very involved prayer life where you are very much interacting with God and where there are what people might call ecstatic behavior and where you have prophesying and things of that nature. And there's no doubt Reading Cyprian here, you can feel him saying, "That's we don't feel comfortable with that. Like, that makes us feel bad. And here's the thing. That's been my experience in the contemporary church. Like, I feel like churches split along these lines in a big way because people who belong to certain backgrounds and denominations just don't feel comfortable um, in, in that setting. I'll, I'll give you an example. 
when I was in college, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we tried to work together with other Christian campus, uh, other Christian ministries on campus. One of which was a ministry of the Assemblies of God, a Pentecostal movement, and one of which was the Baptist Campus Ministries, which was a Southern Baptist movement. And we decided to have a joint worship service where we'd come together and sing songs of worship with each other. And we were, everybody was so friendly and nice and we treated each other super well. And there was no like negative conversation that I ever recall having, but you could feel the discomfort (laughs) when the Pentecostals on the one hand were worshiping in the way that they worship and the Baptists were worshiping in the way that they worship. And so all that to say that that is a tension that has, as far as I can tell, long existed within the church. And I think it might actually be one of the reasons why the church made a move towards set times of prayer and perhaps form prayers. I grew up, man. Yeah, I saw it all, I feel. I went to events where, yeah, I because I didn't know what Pentecostalism was when I was like 12. But when I met those people, I was like... Um, no, I'm not possessed by a demon, but no, I'm also not going to speak in tongues right now. And I thought like, this is kind of crazy. And, uh, cause that was actually something they assumed Now this isn't speaking for all Pentecostals by any means, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I guess cause I'm on the show. If you're the charismatic, I guess technically I'm a charismatic too, but you're right. I'm not the one that you'd want representing the charismatics yeah. on the show. Because I, I oftentimes, even when I see things, like I just look at ministries, I'll often go, wow, it was great that, you know, um, it so happened that X, Y, and Z occurred so that logically this entailed this and you were able to do this. God did that for you. And people look at things like, like I'll care about whether your, you know, your missions trip did something successfully via, you know, and I'll look at all the logistics and I'll go, wow, the logistics just fell out. That was God working. And I look at that kind of stuff. I'm more minded that way. Whereas other people are like very focused on, no, but this person was healed and I prayed for it. And then like, so like I've even been around friends who are true charismatics in the sense that they're like kind of more looking for, I would say, miracles. And when I'm with them, you know, they're often going, wait, that's what you considered was God working. I considered this was God working in the scenario. And so I don't know. Yeah. It's just, a, it is a weird divide. It's just, I think it's just personality, but I've come to just accept all those people and be like friends, but I'm just not the same as you. And yeah. I don't think it's a problem, but yeah. We do need to get a charismatic on the show though. Yeah. I can get, well, we can add that to the, to the list. Um <laughs> that we, we need to have on, which is good. Uh, I think it, it makes it makes the show more interesting. Uh, but we are here to continue on with Cyprian's view of the Lord's Prayer. Oh, and I wanted to sort of make a, an additional comment to what Tom was saying, um, you know, just it, it for, which is to say that in um, Carthage, in North Africa right, Africa right now, um, in the period that we're studying, it's not long after Tertullian. Um, and we think that Cyprian might have even been, a, you know, might be reading some of what Tertullian had written. Um, and so clearly there are the, and these Montanists group uh, last into the sixth century at least. Um, and so there are various kinds of churches in North Africa. And we'll, we'll come back, we'll revisit this in the Donatist controversy about a hundred years from now. 
where you continue to have various different churches in North Africa. And so it's never, you know, as much as Cyprian is uh, writing for the unity of the church and wants to see what what we'll call Catholic, um, which is just universal in Greek, um, you know, he's aware of many different forms of, or many different communities of Christians, even in his, even in this smaller city of Carthage in North Africa. Um, And so, um, again, just a little bit of the historical context is is helpful. Um, I guess we could turn to uh, what he actually says about the Lord's Prayer. I didn't find any of it um, dramatically unique um, or all that, like it would have just been, oh yeah, I could have explained the Lord's Prayer like this. Um, one one thing that I thought was interesting, and then I'll open it up sort of um, to you, um, is um, in chapter 17, um, he talks about the loving and persecuting of the enemies. Um, and then it says about midway down, so we should pray and intercede as Christ counsels us and makes intercession for the salvation of all, so that just as the will of God is done in heaven, that in us through our faith with the result that we are in heaven, um, so that the will of God should be done on earth. It's, it's in this uh, 17 is when he's talking about God's will being done. Um, it, uh, one of my footnotes notes that even Tertullian in his uh, discussion of on prayer praise for the emperor. And so they look at this line as the intercession for the salvation of all and prayer for all, um, you know, these Christians, although they were being persecuted uh, for their faith, they're still praying for Decius. They're still praying uh, for the Romans. They're still praying and caring and desiring the salvation of all amidst um, the, the harm that they're going through. I just thought that was kind of a, a cool um, thing to highlight. Yeah, for sure. I would kind of add it's a couple of it's a couple of passages or chapters back because that was dealing with the section of "Thy will be done," was it not? I, I think so. Yeah, because I like that. I really that's probably my favorite section in terms of commentary on the actual text because in chapter fourteen he says we had also and say Thy will be done as in heaven so in earth. Not that God should do what he wills, but that we may be able to do what God wills. And so what I, how I kind of read that and what I, what I appreciated about that is, of course, as a child, when I first learned this prayer, I remember being confused, thinking, well, of course what God wills will be done. Why ought I pray it? Like, it's, it, you know, and, and it seems to me that Cyprian is kind of acknowledging that and almost saying, look, everybody prayer isn't what you all think it is. It's not primarily about getting what you want. It's not primarily about petition. It's about conforming our will to him, right? So in other words, the prayer for God's will to be done is so that I might learn how to fall in line with his will. And I do think I wrestle with petitionary prayer. It's it's something I don't understand. Um, Jesus commands us to ask I believe in asking. I believe in making petitions. Um, He commands us to ask, and certain promises are made of us receiving those things. And yet we often don't receive those things. And that's always been a confusion. I think the Bible, of course, has, I, I think certain passages can be read where you can kind of come up with explanations, but it is nonetheless 
and always has been a bit of a confusion for me. I still believe in petitionary prayer. So please don't misunderstand me. I do think we're supposed to ask for things. I think when we ask and receive, our joy is full. I do think we glorify God in those moments. But I think if our life is dedicated only to, or even primarily to making petitions for the sake of, you know, whatever it is we're asking for, I do think that we miss out on what is the primary purpose, which is to line up my will with God's, to teach me how to think like him. And and for me, this actually falls right in line with what Romans 8 says about prayer. In Romans 8, it says, we do not know how to pray as we should, meaning that the things that we pray for, I guess, or, or the ways that we pray are not proper. But then it says, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings and utterings which are beyond our comprehension. And so it would seem to me that, that the whole process of prayer in certain ways is, is a way of kind of making my will, my thoughts, and my voice line up with God's will, his thoughts, and his voice. Yeah, which I, I really liked 15. It's a giant freaking run-on sentence, which we always see from some of these people. Like every <laughs> once in a while, someone wants to be Paul. That's how I feel, at least. I don't know if that's the story oh, for reason. Sure. Well, they going, also want to be guys- Cicero, so... <laughs> Uh, that's true too yeah because this is latin true but uh it's yeah it's a giant sentence but it was like a cool okay uh the last sentence of of section 14 says we who desire to abide forever shall do the will of god who is everlasting and then he begins 15 with now that is the will of god which christ both didn't talk and then he just has this giant rap sheet of stuff that I, I, it's just really like when you read it, it's forceful as one giant. It's sentence. awesome. Yeah. It's my favorite part of this. It's same. <laughs> it's my, I mean, like I was pretty pumped up. It's, it's my favorite part. Good. But, oh yeah. Should I read the yeah. whole thing? Yeah. Right. It's amazing. Uh, he says, which Christ both didn't taught. It's humility in conversations, steadfastness in faith, modesty in words, justice in deeds, mercifulness in works, discipline in morals, to be unable to do a wrong and to be able to bear a wrong when done, to keep peace with the brethren, to love God with all one's heart, to love him and that he is a father, to fear him and that he is a God, to prefer nothing whatever to Christ because he did not prefer anything to us, to adhere inseparably to his love, to stand by his cross bravely and faithfully when there is any contest on behalf of his name and honor, to exhibit in discourse that constancy wherewith we make confession, in torture, that confidence wherewith we do battle. In death, that patience whereby we are crowned. This is to desire to be fellow heirs with Christ. This is to do the commandment of God. This is to fulfill the will of the Father. It's awesome. I mean, it's just really good. I, yeah, I was like, man, all right, I got to remember this. So <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you found that because I actually, I started, I circled it, and I put a note here, and I still forgot to read it. <laughs> I still was like, I totally spaced that. Yeah, I I love that section. I well, I don't I don't know if this is correct or not, but this is the first time I at least remember reading a super explicit uh, account of the Eucharist being the literal uh, body and blood of Christ. Uh, was here in eighteen. I mean, I'm sure maybe someone else wrote about it. We just didn't read their reading on it. Or I have a horrible memory and I forgot. But this is the first time I 
I see like a super explicit like defense of the Eucharist being, um, I mean, you can't say transubstantiated because it's a bit, that's anachronistic, but of being really the body and blood of Christ. So, so and he, and he, then he uh, connects this to the give us our day, our daily bread. Uh, then he also gives a commentary on that part, which I've heard as a more modern one, which is more like give us what we need for the day. But he also compares it to Christ's body, which is the bread of life. Mm-hmm. So the am, what, I, am I right about this? So I don't think you're wrong per se. Like when I read it, I think absolutely that's probably what he's thinking. But do keep in mind, like I just preached a sermon just Sunday on John 6. And in John 6, Jesus says, my flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. If you do not eat my flesh, you do not drink my blood. Then you have no life in you. Afterwards, we did communion. And then I said, now, guys, I'm doing communion this week because it totally makes sense. Right? Uh, It is completely connected to this passage. For when you eat this bread and when you drink this cup, you have life. You are partaking of his body. Now, I say that as one who does not believe in the literal presence um, in the bread and the cup. And I still say it. So in other words, everything I read here, I like, I think he probably does believe in the literal presence, but everything I read here is something I could say in a writing and I would mean it metaphorically. Does that make sense? Mm. So I'm not saying you're wrong. I just am saying that I could write this and still mean it metaphorically. That's one of the problems I think with actually interpreting these passages is you never know if somebody's being metaphoric and hyperbolic, which is what I would do, or whether or not they are actually holding to a kind of, to an actual doctrine. I think one of the reasons is, is because at this point, I don't think anybody's actually fought over this doctrine. They probably just don't even think about a difference because nobody's actually even brought it up. You know what I mean? That's, I think how, because it's not until somebody actually brings up the contrary point that then you define the doctrine. So when somebody comes up and says, you don't actually think he's there, do you? That's when we'll find out, I think, for sure what he believes. But I do suspect you're right. I don't, it's not that I think you're wrong. I suspect that he does think of a literal presence. There's no doubt that these early fathers had a higher sense of the sacraments than did, than do most contemporary evangelicals. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. I mean, it should be noted that it's not until uh, I think there's a ninth century, uh, yeah, it's a ninth century controversy where um, they try to explain the doctrine of how Christ is present uh, using Platonic philosophy uh, rather than uh, the Aristotelian distinction between form and matter, uh, because Aristotle uh, has sort of been lost to the West in that period. But they're they're having a conversation about what does it mean for Christ to be present in the bread. And one guy looks, he basically says memorial. Um, and then there's another guy who tries to say, no, Jesus is there. And he gives some sort of weird explanation using just the, the Plato's idea of the forms. And I don't really remember how he cashes it out. But it's kind of, it's kind of funny to read it because, uh, you know, we often think of the Catholic position in terms of uh, what Aquinas says using Aristotle. Um, and, and actually before... Uh, there is Aquinas. There, there was only uh, Plato to be read because uh, most of Aristotle's works were lost um, for a, for a period. Um, so anyway, I, I only bring that up to say uh, we will address it before even Aquinas and before the Reformation, but not for uh, seven hundred years. <laughs> well, then noting the fact that this can be taken differently, which I actually was thinking when I was reading it as well. Is this then, Chad, though, the first person we've read who talks about though this explicitly? 
No, I mean, I think he's done. I would, I would say exactly what Tom said about quoting John six. I mean, the Didache mentions it. Um, and, uh, I think Justin, uh, might touch on it, but I don't know. I don't know with them. I would have any different interpretation than what Tom just gave, which is they, they believe it's maybe more meaningful than a Protestant might would probably say they don't, but they don't make the distinction between memorial or actual presence. And I think we actually discussed this before. I think, Trevor, you and I might have gotten in a bit of an argument about that, if I recall right, and over a similar kind of thing, but I can't remember who it was we were reading. Hmm. So it? it could oh. have been the Didache. The, the Didache no, definitely actually, mentions it, and Justin mentions it. But I think I wasn't on for the Didache, actually. I don't think I was on for that podcast, but I think it was Justin then probably. Maybe Justin, yeah. I don't recall which one it was, but I do remember. You're right, because it was, it was one where I thought it was pretty obvious he was – yeah, and I, and I think the point I was making then is the same point I was trying to make here was just quite simply that he probably does, but I don't. But I could see myself making the same point, even though I'm a memorialist. So, um, one point that we should bring up in terms of just actually what is his Lord's Prayer, um, and and which is to say, you know, right now I think you could go you could go to different churches and hear variations on debts transgressions and sins um and um but you would also notice uh for cyprian that the differences aren't only in uh in that where he does say forgive us our debts um which um i think is how the presbyterians still do it at the episcopal church we say uh transgressions um what did you but, say trespasses or trespasses sorry trespasses yeah that's what i meant um but he also does. He also ends with, um, as, "But uh, deliver us from the evil one, um, libera nos amalo," um, and does not have for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, uh, which is an ending uh, in Matthew, I believe, and it's also reiterated in the Didache. But Luke uh, actually doesn't have that ending, um, and in the Roman Catholic Missal, in the Latin Missal, um, it has always ended with "and deliver us from evil" without this what. Uh, the sort of doxology of for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, uh, which like I say, which now we all say almost unanimously in Protestant circles. Uh, but in Roman Catholic, uh, in, in the Latin rite, um, you don't use that ending. Well, isn't it also actually a uh, textual variant in Matthew? I mean, don't some old versions of the text not have it and some do. And that's right. I think the Texas Receptus actually has that ending. Um, but right. So there are variations on the Matthew, whether or not it has it, but at least the Didache, the Didache preserves it, um, which is a probably late first century document, maybe early second. Well, and it matters that Cyprian doesn't because Cyprian is a, I mean, we're talking an, we're talking a early to mid third century writer who doesn't include it. That's an early text. That's earlier than any complete text of Matthew we have. Right. Right. So, um, I mean, that's the significant at the same time, I feel like I haven't prayed the Lord's prayer until I say that. Like, I feel like (laughs) I'm chopped off so much when I don't like, I'm like, it's like, you're just, you're almost about to do something and then you don't do it. And it's like, uh, yeah, I, it I, does I, feel just too short. It does. You, it just, you it stop just, and you're just like, uh, deliver us from evil. And you're like, oh, there needs to be something else here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that last bit is so good. Yeah. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I mean, that is awesome. 
I mean, to not have it in when you're praying it is just, it's so anticlimactic to end with <laughs> and deliver us from the evil one or to deliver us from evil. That's just good writing, you know? Yeah. Just keep it in. Hey, can I add something real quick? Yeah, and I'm going to need to go after okay. that. Chapter 31, I found this super interesting. In chapter 31, guys, we see a component of the modern, well, not the modern liturgy, but of the of the liturgy as it's passed down in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Anglican Church, yes. which was awesome. I saw this too. Uh, right, where he sits there and he says, um, uh, for this reason also the priest, by way of preface before his prayer, he prepares the minds of the brethren by saying, Lift up your hearts. That's upon the people's response. So this is an antiphonal response. We lift them up unto the Lord, which if you go to a Catholic church, if you go to an Episcopalian or Anglican church, you will see this played out in the liturgy. Of course, for me, I I mean, guys, this shows us just how old the liturgy is. And we've already seen some some texts that have referenced liturgical aspects. But this is the most, I think, obvious, concrete expression. And it just shows us that the liturgy is old. And it's not one of those things that I think a lot of Protestants like to uh, like to say that it was like created in the Middle Ages or after Constantine when, when we started, you know, making the, you know, dumbing down the faith, so to speak, or something like that. Like liturgy was a part of what they were doing. And, and this antiphonal, meaning back and forth response between the guy who's presiding over the service and then the, the, the people responding. And Chad, maybe you can help me on this too. He refers, at least in translation, to that president as a priest. Is that what it is in Latin? Is it is it actually, what is it, sacerdos? Is that the word for priest? Sacerdos would be right. Let me see. So we're 31. Uh, how many must, uh Sursum uh, corda ut dum respondent plebs. <laughs> ut respondent plebs, as the plebs respond. Yes. It's <laughs> uh, Yeah. It does. Uh-huh. So they use the word priest. Crazy. That is crazy because that is, I, I mean, I, I actually, I have to admit, for the longest time, I've always thought that the, the using of the term priest, which, you know, I mean, sacerdos, priest, in the church came about because of the identification once Constantine converts and subsequently the different emperors rule, the identification of the, of the church, the Catholic church with the old Roman religious state. Yeah. That's what I've always believed here. We clearly are referring to the the leader of a service as a sacerdote, as a priest. That's fascinating because guys, this is, this is fully a hundred years before Constantine is going to be entrenched as emperor. Yeah, no, this was, I, I thought this was cool just because just like the whole him talking about the Our Father being corporate and praying it together made me mm-hmm. feel the warm and fuzzies of being united with all the other Christians. Similarly, I just went to St. Michael's Episcopal Cathedral last uh, Sunday, and so I just was like, I had just done this. And so then when he said this, I was just like, this is just so cool. It's like, this yeah. happened. To, and I had to, I immediately looked up because I wasn't sure the exact year. I was like, I immediately Googled when Cyprian lived because I was like, when was this written? This is crazy. Because I was like, I just did this last Sunday. It's 2016. Like, yeah, I don't know. That was cool. And I should add, I made a mistake. It's not a full hundred years. It's less than a hundred years between Cyprian and Constantine. But yeah. it's, I mean, it's a good 60, 70 years. So it's like a lifetime of a person. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a while. Um, sure. Anyway. Yeah. 
It's awesome. It's, cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's nice. It's nice to be able, you know, we do some heavy hitting theology, free will, predestination, Trinity, but it's nice to incorporate the, the liturgical aspects and see, you know, what these uh, theologians have to offer um, in terms of the, you know, Christian practice uh, and worship practice and things like that. Thank you for listening to History of Christian Theology. We'll be back next week with Methodius uh, on the Virgins.